I do see that our numbers are down ever so slightly, which is understandable. This is the second time I have preached, not the first, so much like the courses that I teach. I am taking attendance, though, so if you're here, you will receive credit. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> I, I, true to form, I do want to give you one more question on top of the question that we already asked, um, which is how do you postpone doing that thing that you really hate doing? What's your favorite thing to procrastinate with? Um, am I, I feel like I'm, am I in a little too, okay, uh, and just consider that. I'm not going to make you say that one out loud, right? Um, but just, just think about it. And if you want to go ahead and, and look at the verse we'll be looking at today and try and figure out where we could possibly be going or how it could possibly be connected to that question, it's 2 Kings 2, 23, and 24. 2 Kings 2, 23, 24. It's in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, uh, boy, is it a doozy. It's a fun one, actually. I, I really like this verse a lot. Um, <laughs> this story a whole lot. This is really good. So uh, let's just go ahead and, and read it to start out here. Second Kings chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. The end. Uh, you know, I was thinking when I read this, when I read this story, the Old Testament really goes a lot harder than the New Testament does it. You can't imagine Jesus at any point being like, so Pharisees, I see you've gotten it wrong again, bears. Um, that's not how it works, but Elisha does. That's right, yeah, it's, it sounds like Pokemon, right? Then Elisha says, I choose you, bears, and they maul all the youths. Um, this story is kind of funny, right? Because it's going up, Baldy, and then bears. Um, and we're reading it about it from several thousand years afterwards, and so it doesn't seem that serious, but this would be a major incident, right? Can you imagine the bad press? Right? Elisha would 100% be canceled. Now, if it was like, oh, made fun of his bald hair, so he killed them, that is a disproportionate response. And um, I know those of you who are, are practiced in, in reading scripture and you've done this before, you're like, this guy is tricking us. I know. I have to go look at what says before that and what it says right after that. But go ahead and do it. It is no help whatsoever. None. This is a total non sequitur of a story. It's completely out of left field. Elisha's walking along. He's performing the nice kind of miracles, like, I'm going to purify the water. Great. And the water is pure to this day. And afterwards, he's just going somewhere and visiting some people. And in the middle, bear attack. Right? Uh, it just makes, it makes no sense. Um, which is why I find it so fascinating, because it's really bizarre. And so I want to give you several readings of this from various points in my life. Uh, from when I was exposed to it early on, um, 
my dad uh, is, is a preacher, and he would uh, sometimes on, in the car on the way to school would tell us obscure Bible stories. This is my second favorite obscure Bible story that not a lot of people know. My first favorite is uh, Ehud and Eglon, the left-handed judge who stabs the king and then jumps down the toilet to escape. Um, again, wild stuff in the Old Testament. Uh, but this is my second favorite sort of out there story. Um, and when I was a kid, I loved this story. I really did, because in my mind I was thinking, good, good. Bunch of mouthy kids going out there, disrespecting their elders. I know better, and they should have known better. Bears. And I'm sure you have been at something like this point in your life, right? You're in a hurry. You're at the grocery store. There's a bunch of people coughing everywhere, and nobody's covering their mouths. And you're in the 10 items or fewer because all you needed was one thing for dinner, right? And there's somebody with 30 items, and they're in the 10 items or fewer, and you're thinking, this is a real, I wish I could summon bears moment, (laughs) right? I would be really satisfied if I could just summon some bears for you, right? That you with your 30 items and the 10 items or fewer checkout. I'm counting, I'm counting, right? I had a lot of moments like that, especially as a kid. I was very judgy, right? And so that was my first sort of reading, was that God is an, an expression of my anger at the injustices in the world, And that it's satisfying to have some real oomph and some real power behind that, right? Especially as a kid when you're so powerless and you can't do anything, right? Uh, uh, The idea that God's power could mimic your your desires, right? That that was how that worked. I was like, yes, that would be awesome. I want to be Elisha. Then I got a little bit older and I realized I was not Elisha. I was 100% a youth calling someone an old baldy. Uh, that was definitely more my speed, and, and my, my feelings about this story changed a lot because I had been someone who found a lot of comfort in it, like, yes, and now there was this mysterious and unknowable God because I didn't think that this was that bad. Going up, Baldy, I've said worse. I've done worse. So which sins, I'm looking up, going, I don't understand, which sins are going to be the ones where Jesus goes, oh, it's okay, honey, come here, it's fine died for this. You're okay. And which ones are going to be the bear attack sins? I didn't know. You know, where's the line? Is, is, I'm I'm putting my toe over here. Is this a bear attack sin or is this a Jesus loves you sin? Which, which story are we in? Am I in the Old Testament with Elisha? You know, is this when the earth's opening up and people are falling in for not believing in, in God and for disobeying Moses? Where are we in this narrative? Who do I get to be? Because I'm finding myself to be kind of this bad person a lot of the time. I'm, you know, I'm doing things that aren't good. I know I am sinning. Do I need to be checking for bears? Do I need to carry bear mace just in case God gets really angry at me? And I was also confused because while we did have this mysterious, unknowable God, there were some people who seemed to take a lot of confidence in that. They just thought that they had a different, they must have had a different relationship with God than I did because they would pray and say that God would tell them to do things and they just understood this mysterious, unknowable God. You know, and they tended to get out of breath at the end of all their sentences like that. They couldn't go on. (laughs) Oh man, these are the people that called God Daddy when they prayed, Dear Daddy. It's always so breathy and awkward to me. And I'm like, he can send bears. Why are you doing this? Right? And they're the ones when they went on missions, they would talk about where God was calling them to. Like, just call me somewhere, God. And it would always be somewhere like Hawaii. You know, it's where your beauty is, but they don't know you. I just need to go tell them. Right? It was that. And that, that, that version of the mysterious unknowable God was very confusing to me too because nobody seemed to ever get called to like, Wirt, West Virginia, 
W-I-R-T, Population 5000, which is a real place, by the way. Uh, and if you, if you go to the website for Work West Virginia, which I did, um, seeing the types of research I do, there's a frequently asked questions about Work West Virginia, which is a lie, because there are no frequently asked questions about Work West Virginia, but they have that section anyway. Question one is, where can a family eat in Work West Virginia? Uh, and there are four restaurants listed that are all chains, which is great. And then the second question is, uh, what is there to do in Wirt, West Virginia? And it, it says, there's a single line of text below it that just says, the festival. Uh, and that's it for Wirt, West Virginia, population 5,000. Who They didn't sign up for this. They shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be taking a shellacking in the sermon. But right, nobody's ever called to Wirt. People are called to New York, right? People are called to, to Hawaii. Um, from this mysterious, unknowable God, that sense of certainty. And that confused me as well. Um, then as I got older, uh, um, I had a third sort of reading of this. Reading one, to recap, is good, God's on my side, and he's an expression of my anger, which is very immature. Reading two was, I have no clue what's in and what's out, but this is mysterious and confusing. Reading three, actually is uh, um, a little bit different. It's the, the Gamaliel reading. So in Acts 5.38, you don't have to turn there. We'll just be here for just a second. Um, there's this verse. Therefore, in the present case, this is Gamaliel speaking, right? This is this uh, uh, priest of the Sanhedrin. This guy is like a uh, uh, very well-respected scholar. Uh, and, and what's the context for this is the apostles are in trouble, right? And, and the question is, should we kill them? Should we just kill them now? In the present case, Gamaliel says, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And I grew up loving this verse, right? I loved this verse because I had a very easy and successful life. And this obviously meant that I was doing what God wanted, right? The reason that I'm successful, the reason things are going my way is because I I'm a good person. I'm just following the will of God. It had nothing to do with my own privilege. It had nothing to do with the privilege of the economic station I was born into or the connectedness of my family, right? It had nothing to do with that. It's because I'm a good person. And that was very satisfying to me. And then I went back to this verse and I started thinking, what if, what if that's not exactly how it goes? What if God grants power but doesn't grant how it should be used? right? He doesn't determine how it should be used. Because that, in a way, kind of explains this, doesn't it? Elisha had a bad day, right? Somebody, you know, uh, pissed in his Wheaties. He was having a bad morning, and so he summoned bears using the power God had given him. And there's precedent for this, actually, as well. Because you remember Moses, when God says, speak to the rock and water will come out, but Moses is angry, so he smacks it with a stick. It still works, Right? He doesn't do what God says, and it still works. And so there is biblical precedent for God giving people power and the power functioning in the way that person wants, not in the way that God wants, which in a way made me much more comfortable with this, you know, pretty flagrant murder of a bunch of kids, right? If we're being honest, it's funny because bears and far removed, but it's just a murder of a bunch of kids, right? And that's uncomfortable, so that explains it, but that also means that maybe I've been given all this stuff by God and he hasn't really told me how to use it necessarily, or he has in the Bible, but I can't use the Gamaliel defense of if it's going my way, it's because I'm great. 
which made me pretty uncomfortable. Okay, take all that, put it in a box. This is, I didn't have a way of segueing here, so I'm just going to tell you to put it in a box. Tape the box shut. We're going to open it in a little bit, but we're not going to open it yet. Okay, so all of that information, bears, all that stuff in a box. You will be tested on this. If you look actually in front of you, there's a blue book. It's an essay question. I've got it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, there, are, there will be no testing, but that's in a box. We are going to mention it again. So uh, I teach English for a living. That's what I do. Um, and, and English teachers have really taken a shellacking over the past, you know, 15, 20 years. In fact, everybody who teaches in the humanities has because it's been all about STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math. That's the... That's the area, and, and there's some people who try to call it STEAM. They work art in there, right? But it's STEM. It's STEM versus the humanities, and, and STEM has, uh, you know, if you look at the, the majors that lead to high-paying jobs, it is not, you know, I'm a, I'm a literature major, and uh, I'm specializing in, you know, English literature between 1800 and 1855. Uh, no, who's paying that person? Nobody. Nobody is paying that person, Right? But if you're in STEM, you have these practical skills, you can really make it happen. And that was all going really great for STEM until 2016. And, and everybody in, in the humanities went, he told you. <laughs> ah, we haven't had the hard, the hard evidence, but you need us, right? Because the claim became, and there's a lot of books on this and a lot of teaching materials pushing towards this saying, what we can do in the humanities is we can teach you to understand your own bias. We can teach you to understand bias in communication. We can teach you to essentially detect fake news because we can teach you to become rhetorically sophisticated. We have all this evidence that very smart people can be fooled by fake news if it confirms their biases. And so there has to be a degree of introspection, which is further enabled by empathy. And there is a study, actually 2013 University of Toronto study, study uh, University of Toronto study, that shows that reading fiction frequently increases empathy. Now, it does not increase your self-reported empathy. Of course, self-reported measures are, are notoriously unreliable, right? Which means everybody feels like oh, I'm pretty empathetic. But frequent literature readers, on objective measures of empathy, were more empathetic than those who did not. And so all the English teachers were sitting here going, our revenge is here. We felt very, very good about all of this. This bad news was wonderful news for us. Um, and I was certainly in that camp until uh, uh, in 2020, there's an article that came out in Harper's, uh, Vicious Cycles, by a guy named Greg Jackson. Kind of took the wind out of my sails. Um, this is a, a part of what he says in this article. It's a brief little excerpt. When you think you are doing something serious, but you are doing something trivial and fun, you grow to believe that serious things are effortless and enjoyable. You are experiencing a format while believing you are experiencing a content. The content suggests you're learning about truth when you are really learning how to feel. You were learning how you should feel in the presence of certain information. These feelings go on to determine your expectations and worldview. To put this another way and in the context of the article that he's writing, he's making the claim essentially that whatever our take is on the news, true or false, it does not materially affect our behavior. 
right, that we watch the news and it compels us to watch more news, but if the news were to compel us to go do something, it would require us to turn off the news, which is against the interest of the news. And so those of us who feel very good about being informed, or like me, who feel very good about increasing empathy among the youth so they can be more competent voters, are in fact just consuming information for the sake of information, and the information is specifically designed to deprive you of the will to do anything, to deprive you of the desire to go out and actually put your hands on something and change it. This is the line that that, uh, um, kind of left me reeling when I first read it in this article. In the immediate and practical sense, Jackson writes, news and fake news became a distinction without a difference. Really unfortunate for English teachers. Put that in a box, set it aside, get your other box out. I've read a lot of commentaries on this Elisha uh, case, 2 Kings 2. 23 and 24. Uh, And these commentaries, if they're from the Protestant tradition that I am from, are are notoriously defensive. Well, they say, this word that is translated children does not mean children. These are actually probably grown men who were killed. Like, oh, well, then that's fine. (laughs) Okay, maybe not, right? That's what they all begin with. They say, it's not actually kids. Let's just be clear. We're not killing children. Uh, and then some will go on to say even further, these were actually probably acolytes of another god. These are probably priests or priests in training of another god. And we all know it's okay to kill people if they worship another god. I... Okay, maybe not. The most ridiculous commentary I read said, in all likelihood, they stole the bear's cubs, and that's why they were attacking, which of course is just absurd, right? Clearly, this is a spot that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people because it's extremely difficult to justify, right? You stole bear? That's not true. Um, And the most disturbing to me, though, and this goes back to that Gamaliel argument, the most disturbing commentary, and I saw this one a lot too, is it must be fine because it worked, right? If God hadn't wanted it to happen, if it had been unjustifiable, then God wouldn't have let it happen. So it's fine. We don't have to worry about it because it's not our job to worry about it. God's already answered this one for us, guys. Wash your hands and walk away. They deserved it. Very uncomfortable. So I had to look kind of outside the Protestant tradition, and I found some commentaries that were a little more, uh, I think, illuminating. Uh, This is a complex narrative in a series of related, intentionally historically parallel narratives, and this story may be more poetic and literary in genre than historical, in fact. I don't know. I'm not saying for sure, but that is part of the claim. A usual thing that happens, there's a process by which we historically say or narratively say that someone has become a priest of God. They receive the blessing of priesthood, they receive a challenge to God's authority, and then nature somehow answers that call, and the fact that nature bears, or with Elijah, bees, right, or whatever the case may be, Right, Because nature answers that call that is uh, an indication that God is, is on this person's side because that's something that's outside of their control. Even the winds and the waves obey him. Right, We can see the parallel structures here. Now this makes sense, right? That you would need to have this sort of 
natural way of relaying the blessing of God, especially if you're in a strip of land that does not have seasonal rivers that rise and fall to deposit silt, right? There's no, uh, um, there's no Nile. There's no Euphrates, right? Uh, it is between these great warring powers uh, and will be for thousands of years. Um, and because of these sort of shifting weather patterns, there will be decades of bounty followed by decades of famine, and so we look to an explanation, and yeah, I think we can say very firmly, okay, something's going on here. Either we're acting right or we're acting not. How do we exercise a bit of control? Narratively, that makes sense. Now, I think that's probably the likely explanation for this story. I don't know. Maybe it happened another way. Maybe it didn't happen at all. I, I think it's kind of immaterial, though. Are you going to behave differently? Is your life changed because of the bear story? I think not, right? If you know, if you know the, the, the most theologically sound, the most academically supported, the most serious interpretation of the story, is your life changed? And I, again, I, I don't think so, right? I don't think so at all. And if you'll take both boxes out now and look at them together, I say I think it's because... Theology has often been entertainment. Denominations become a distinction without a difference, a reason to argue without asking us to do anything, so that by believing correctly, we give ourselves the satisfaction of service without the burden of service. I'm not saying theology doesn't matter at all. Theology is serious, deadly serious, in as much as it provides an excuse for some to engage in exclusion and cruelty in the name of a God who has a political party. But that can't be our theology. Our theology can't justify our inaction because it can't be a pursuit. A theology is not an end. I still love this story, and I love that it's here. I should tell you I titled this, Does a Bear Mall in the Woods? That's the title. Um, there were other less savory titles uh, that, that were kicked around, but I still love this story, and I do think that, that theology matters, and I care about it a lot, but I can tell you honestly that for me, I have often spent years with no acts of service, patting myself on the back, for being theologically correct and letting others know they were wrong. The Methodist Church in particular is in a season of um, difficulty over these issues, right? Um, this is going on. Perhaps the way to a resolution is to focus less on theology and more on how we can love and serve one another. Right, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the gift of the Bible and all of the wonderful things it can teach us. And forgive us for all the times we use it for things that it should not be used for, to justify our own cruelty and inhumanity, to do things in your name that serve our ends. Help us to be better. Help us not to debate what you want, but to spend our time being like you instead. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.